Alright, well once again, good morning. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 13. Now as we've been studying the Gospel of Matthew on Sunday morning, we have come to chapter 13. And as we've already pointed out, Matthew 13 contains seven parables, all having one basic theme, and that is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, or as Matthew refers to it, the kingdom of heaven, is an expression that denotes God's rule on the earth. Now, we need to be careful so as not to misunderstand what that means. God had promised the nation of Israel that someday he would send a Messiah who would bring an end to man's rule upon the earth a rule that has resulted in evil, immorality, violence, injustice, war, etc. And in its place, the Messiah would establish a kingdom of true righteousness and peace. This kingdom was prophesied numerous places in the Old Testament. One of the better known passages is one that we hear quite a bit during the Christmas season. That one comes out of Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, which simply says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government, talking about the millennial kingdom now, will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice, from this time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Now, When Jesus the Messiah came into the world, he came inviting people to become a part of this coming kingdom. He approached the Jews first because the Bible says salvation is of the Jews. They were the ones that God had chosen to be his people, to be a light to the rest of the world. It was to them and the patriarchs that God promised Messiah's coming. So it was fitting that Messiah, when he came, would go to Israel first, offering them a chance now to be members of the kingdom. He said, well, how does a person become a member of this kingdom? Well, very simply, by believing in Jesus and receiving him into your heart as your Savior, but also as king over your life. When a person receives the king, the kingdom comes with him. There is no such thing as a kingdomless king. And when Jesus comes into your heart, he brings the kingdom inwardly into your life. Of course, he's coming again someday to bring an outward political kingdom. A kingdom of peace, joy, love, etc. But because that kingdom is yet future, and you've received the king now into your heart, those of you who have done that, those kingdom attributes have come into our hearts as well, haven't they? The love, the joy, the peace, all the things that God will bring outwardly to the world when Jesus comes back the second time and establishes that visible kingdom, God is now worked in our hearts as we've invited the king to take up the throne of our hearts and rule over our lives. Listen, the kingdom of heaven upon the earth will someday be relocated and become the kingdom of heaven in heaven. But for right now, God is building a kingdom on the earth made up of all those who accept Jesus as king. Now, here's where it gets a little sticky. The devil doesn't want the kingdom of God expanded on the earth because the more God's kingdom grows, the more Satan's kingdom shrinks. And so in an effort to thwart the plan of God, the devil has flooded the church with counterfeits, counterfeit Christians, in an attempt to corrupt the kingdom of God or the church from the inside and thereby lessen its influence around the world. 
And guys, this was something that Jesus was illustrating through these kingdom parables numbers 2, 3, and 4. Sure, he wants to talk to us about the kingdom, but the kingdom is not without its opposition. And we better be aware of what that opposition is like, what it's all about, if we're going to stand up against it. Because if we're not aware of what Satan is going to try to do to lessen our effectiveness in the world, in fact, to neutralize our effectiveness, well, then he's going to be successful. Jesus said, against my church, the gates of hell will not prevail. That is, as long as the church keeps fighting, walking in the spirit, and doing all that God has said to do. But we can let our guard down. We can go to sleep in the light, as many have. We can be ignorant of Satan's devices, even as Paul said we are not. But some of us can be. And when we are, it gives Satan an opportunity to come in and work under the darkness of ignorance. And he, will, he does some of his best work that way. So Jesus is trying to warn us through these middle parables. Trying to warn us. We studied parable number two last week, the parable of the wheat and the tares. As Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sows in the world a seed. But those seeds become children of the kingdom who then go on to establish churches and expand the kingdom of God in the earth. Well, Satan doesn't want that, so as God sows the wheat, his true people, Satan comes along and sows the tares. Tares were poisonous weeds that looked exactly like wheat until, of course, the wheat produced the fruit or the grain. The darnel or the tares could not do that. And so as we looked at that parable last time, we saw how Satan will try to infiltrate into a church to sow his counterfeits, to choke out the life in that church. Well, now Jesus is reinforcing that very idea through parables 3 and 4, which we'll study this morning, the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven. Now, let's read verses 31 and 2, which says, Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all seeds. But when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Now, there are many, many good commentators, wonderful Christians, and good solid pastors who interpret this parable to mean this, that the church would start off small, but grow very large and become a home and a place of shelter for all kinds of people around the world, which is what the birds represent. The birds lodging in its branches signifies the church was spread out over the entire world, and many people from various backgrounds and groups and, and nations would come and take refuge in its branches. Now, that's not a bad interpretation, all right? I just don't think it's the correct interpretation. I'll tell you why in a moment. But historically, that interpretation is correct. In the Great Commission, Jesus told his followers to go into all the world and preach the gospel to all nations, making disciples that would go out and then do the same, reproduce themselves in the world, spiritually speaking. He said that after he returned to the Father, now remember, the night before his crucifixion, he said in the upper room, I'm going away soon. And where I'm going, you can't follow me, but I'm not going to leave you alone like orphans. I'm going to send to you, I'm going to pray to the Father, he will send to you another helper, even the Holy Spirit, who will abide with you forever. The Holy Spirit will give you power to do the work I'm calling you to do. What is that work? To go into all the world and expand the kingdom. I started that work, and now I'm giving it over to you. You are to take the message of the gospel now and go out. And you're to preach it, 
make disciples who will then go out and do the same thing, thereby expanding the kingdom all over the world. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, before he ascended back to his father, he's already now been risen from the dead. He stayed with them for 40 more days after his uh, resurrection, before he ascended back to the father. But in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, this is just before he rose back into heaven. He said, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. That's what he promised them in Acts, excuse me, John 14 in the upper room. You're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, listen, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And once again, before he ascended to the Father, he said this at the end of Luke's gospel. He said, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. But tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. You, you know the gospel, guys. You got the information. You need the power to deliver the information where it's going to pierce hearts and change lives. Don't forget, guys. Here's Jesus talking to a group of farmers and fishermen, blue-collar guys. You know, they had not didn't have degrees and were not uh, intellectuals, really. And Jesus wants them to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Are you kidding, Lord? Rome, Antioch, Alexandria, all the places of culture and learning you want us? You know, we're just normal guys. We're just, you know, backwoods kind of guy, rural guys. You want us to go into the big cities? And how are we going to do this? Well, you're not going to do it. Not alone, at least. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit who will do the work through you. And so, they obey what the Lord said. He went up into the clouds there on the Mount of Olives after he said, don't do anything until you go back to Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon you. And Jesus went up into the clouds. They went back to Jerusalem, uh, found an upper room somewhere, and there they stay for the next week or so until the day of Pentecost had fully come. You remember the story in Acts 2. How it says the day of Pentecost had fully come and all of a sudden they hear a sound like a hurricane blowing through town and then it comes into the room where they're staying and cloven tongues of fire appear above each of their heads and it says they were baptized with the Holy Spirit and filled with this power. Well, the church now has been born. How many were disciples were in the upper room when this happened? 120. A small beginning, right? Kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, small beginning, will grow and so on. Well, that was true. I mean, 120 disciples in an upper room somewhere in the city of Jerusalem. It's a very small, meager beginning. And they went out. First to Jerusalem, as Jesus commanded, spreading the gospel. The gospel began to take hold. People began to get saved. Then they went from there into Samaria, to Judea, and then Samaria. And then we realized, we read the book of Acts, it went north and then west into Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And from there it went farther west, eventually into Europe. And then all the way to the coast of Europe, Britain and so on. It crossed the Atlantic. We know historically that it came to America. And eventually it went around the world. So that is a fact that the church did start small, but then has spread throughout the entire world. And as I said, even though that's historically true, I don't personally think it's the interpretation of this parable. You say, well, why don't you think that? Well, I'll give you a couple of reasons why. Number one, the interpretation that I just shared with you that I don't agree with says that the birds represent people. You know, the church is going to become a, like a mustard seed, small beginning, grow into a, a large tree, and you're going to have people or birds from all over the world nesting in its branches. The birds represent people. The only problem with that is, in parables, the birds always represent Satan, or at least his demons. 
How do I know that? Because in Mark's Gospel, chapter 4, you don't have to turn there, Mark records these same kingdom parables as Matthew does in chapter 13. And after Jesus gave the first parable, as Matthew records, excuse me, as Mark records, the parable of the sower, his disciples take him on the side and said, Lord, will you explain what this means? What does this parable mean? And he said to them in Mark 4, verse 13, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand, listen, all parables? In other words, Jesus is indicating that the parable of the sower was the template for understanding all other parables. And as Jesus explained the imagery in that first parable, what did he say? He said the seed is the word of God. The field is the world. And the birds, right, because in that parable we saw birds, right, the seed was sown, some fell on the wayside, and the birds of the air came, ate the seed up. The birds, Jesus said in that parable, represent Satan. And so as you look at that and realize, well, that first parable was the template for understanding all other parables. That's true, and we believe it is, then whenever birds appear in a parable, they represent Satan. And no doubt would also include his demons or really anybody who's working for him, whether they know it or not, to kind of expand his kingdom and thwart God's plan to expand his own kingdom. So right up front when Jesus said the kingdom of heaven on earth is a place where the birds of the air nest in its branches, well, guys, that should immediately be a red flag to us that whatever this means, it ain't good for the church. If we understand birds to be devil, to be demons, to be, you know, those counterfeits that, that, that Satan sows to, to thwart the plan of God. So I see the birds there not as all kinds of people around the world that lodge in the church's branches. I see something nefarious going on. Secondly, mustard seeds don't grow into trees. Again, verse 31, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds. But when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Luke records Jesus is saying the mustard seed grew into a large tree, a large tree, so that the birds came and nested in its branches. The second reason, I'm uncomfortable with the interpretation that says this is all about the church expanding and all kinds of people lodging in the branches of the church. Uh, the reason I'm uncomfortable with that interpretation, secondly, is because mustard seeds, as I just said, don't grow into trees at all, let alone large trees. Mustard seeds grow into bushes. Some of them can be 10 to 12 feet high. That's a pretty healthy bush. But, you know, it's hardly a large tree. Now, before I go on to give you what I really believe Jesus is teaching here, let me just clear up something. Critics of the Bible jump on Jesus' statement that the mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds as proof that the Bible is inaccurate, you can write it off, it's ridiculous. Why? Because there are other seeds smaller than the mustard seed. See, one more example why we can't trust the Bible, just toss it out. Wow, that's a powerful thing to cause you to throw out the entire word of God based on your understanding of a parable. How about prophecy? How about 27% of the Bible being prophecy? Where God told us things before they happened, he said, because when they happen, you'll know that I'm God and this is my word. 
How about all that stuff? Okay. No, no. You're going to latch on to something stupid that you don't fully understand and say because of this little thing here we can toss the Bible out? Look, one author explained it this way. This is the best explanation I have seen and I agree with it. He said, Jesus is referring to the mustard seed as being smaller than all other seeds has often been cited as proof that Scripture is errant, that Jesus was either fallible and made a mistake, or that he accommodated his teaching to the ignorance of his hearers and knowingly distorted the truth. But he was not comparing this seed to all other seeds in existence, but only to those seeds of garden plants in Israel. Many seeds, such as those of the wild orchid, are much smaller than the seed of the mustard plant. But of the many plants grown at that time in the gardens and fields of Israel, the mustard plant has the smallest seeds, just as Jesus said, end quote. All right, so I don't think we have to comment anymore on that, all right? So you say, well, then what is your interpretation of this parable? Well, I believe that Jesus is using this parable to teach that the kingdom of heaven on the earth, or in other words, the church, was going to have a small, humble beginning, just as we said was true. But somewhere along the way, because the devil couldn't beat the church through persecution, which he tried to do, right? Satan tried to stamp the church out through ten waves of persecution through ten successive emperors, the last one being Diocletian, who really brutally uh, persecuted Christians. So the devil tried for a couple of centuries to wipe the church out, or three centuries, I should say, by sheer persecution. But you know what that did? Every time he persecuted the church more, it just purified it and strengthened it, and it grew more. So eventually, he decided, if I can't beat the church, I'll join the church, and I'll corrupt it from the inside. This satanic infiltration would then lead to the abnormal growth of the church, turning it into something God never intended it to be, a monstrosity, where it would become a refuge for all kinds of false believers and satanic leaders, who would masquerade as representatives of Jesus Christ. Not to mention it would also become a place where doctrines of demons would find a home and many other unbiblical practices. Look, you don't have to turn there, but when we studied the book of Revelation, we saw this, I think, clearly in uh, one of the letters Jesus dictated uh, in chapter 2. Now, we know that Revelation chapters 2 and 3 Jesus dictated seven letters to seven real churches in Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey. These were real churches that had real problems, and Jesus was addressing each one. But spiritually, symbolically, they represent all of church history from the beginning of the church on Pentecost 2,000 years ago to the rapture when the church age would officially come to a close. And I want to zero in on one of those churches that Jesus addressed a letter to. You'll find it in Revelation 2, verses 12 to 17. He addressed a letter to the church in Pergamos. Pergamos. Now, that word comes from two Greek roots. Per means mixed or objectionable. And gamos is the Greek word for marriage. So Pergamos literally means a mixed or objectionable marriage. You say, well, what does that mean, though? How, where are you going with this? Well, hang on, all right? If these seven letters symbolically represent periods of church history from the beginning of the church age to its close, then Pergamus 
as we understand church history, in a symbolic way, represents the period of church history from 313 to 600 A.D. You see, by the beginning of the 4th century, the Roman Empire was in decline. After the reign of Diocletian, who reigned from 303 to 313 A.D., when he died, there was a power struggle between two of his generals, Constantine and Maxentius. Constantine's father had found some success after he prayed to the God of the Christians. So Constantine thought, well, if it worked for my dad, I'll give it a try. Now, Constantine was not a Christian, but he was a pagan, and he was polytheistic, and whatever God seemed to come through, that was a God he wanted to kind of focus on. So look, at my dad prayed to the God of the Christians, I'll try it. I'll try it. I'll pray for victory. Well, the next day, he saw a vision of a flaming cross in the sky with the Latin words over it, in this sign you will be the victor. Well, he went on to defeat Maxentius at the Milvian Bridge and immediately declared his conversion to Christianity. Although he continued to worship the sun god and really gave no evidence of being truly born again. Constantine then rescinded all the laws persecuting the Christians passed by his predecessor Diocletian and replaced them with the Edict of Milan, also known as the Edict of Toleration, which now forbid the persecution of Christians. In fact, Christianity became now the official religion of Rome. And Constantine put Christians into places of high office in the Roman government. He Christianized paganism. You see, he wanted to bring everybody on board. And he needed to Christianize their pagan holidays and practices as best he could so that everyone was kind of on the same page and basically worshiping the same God. And so the pagan festival of Saturnalia, which was a winter solstice festival celebrated uh, from December 21st to the 26th, celebrated with mistletoe, yule logs, and decorated evergreen trees, he made the celebration of the birth of Christ. Well, the winter solstice, Saturnalia, was the, was the celebration of the birth of the sun god. So why don't we just change it to the birth of the son of God, capital S-O-N. Kind of fits, right? The festival of Estart, the fertility goddess, celebrated in the spring with rabbits and multicolored eggs, became Easter, commemorating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He said, why did he do that? Because he couldn't take the pagans' festivals away from them. That's all they had. Don't forget, these people didn't work five days a week and take two off. They didn't go on vacations like we do a couple weeks a year. All they had to give some kind of a a relief and some joy to their dreary, work-laden lives was their festivals. You can't take it away from them. They would have revolted. They would have never accepted Christianity as the official state religion. So he wisely... I think demonically, I'm not laying a trip on Christmas season. We got a Christmas tea tonight. I'm not trying to, you know. (laughs) I celebrate Christmas. My family celebrates Christmas. We have a Christmas tree, but it's not a Saturnalia bush. We don't get around it and, and worship it or anything like that. I'm just saying what he did, though, okay? And so he couldn't take the pagan festivals away from these people, so he just Christianized them. Not only that, he turned pagan temples into churches. Pagan priests became, quote-unquote, Christian priests. 
In effect, he married the church with the state. Again, Satan figured if I can't beat them, I will join them. And this is exactly what I believe the Lord Jesus Christ is prophesying and warning us about in these middle parables. You know, Donald Gray Barnhouse, who was a phenomenal pastor, man of God, and author, in his commentary on the book of Revelation, one of the best commentaries you'll ever find on Revelation, he said with regard to the very thing we're talking about, he said this, and I quote, Imagine the whispering that went on around Rome. The emperor had become a Christian. Out of the catacombs they came. Instead of being persecuted, they found themselves popular. Like a youngster among heavy drinkers, the church's head was turned by the wine of the world. The priests of the pagan temples had been paid from the purse of the empire, but now Caesar was a Christian, and the priests of Mars and Venus hastened to their baptisms. Hey, let's all become Christians if we want to keep getting paid by the state. For the first time in the history of the church, salaries were paid to Christian workers. Tradition has it that Constantine's mother was the first to give the money for the erection of a church building. Before, well, kitchens and catacombs, humble dwellings for the church is the idea, or humbler dungeons that echoed with quiet hymns of the believers whose songs of praise were frequently changed to the shout of the martyr as the believers were dragged forth into the arena. All that was over now. The rags of persecution gave way to softer garments, and the church began to enjoy the feel of silk upon its flesh. Thus the Pergamus stage of church history came into being. The church was married to the world, end quote. Of course, this not only gave rise to the Roman Catholic Church, but as Jesus used the word nested in this parable, remember he said, the birds of the air come and nest in the branches of the church. Nested implies that they reproduce themselves. They reproduce themselves. And today we see that Christendom, and we talk about Christendom, we're talking about everybody in the world who claims to be a Christian. We know that within Christendom, maybe a billion people, I think only around 12% are really born again, which means the church has grown a lot larger than Jesus. The church was never supposed to be anything but true believers. The fact that it's grown into a monstrosity something abnormal, where now it's like, you know, there, there are people calling themselves Christians who don't even believe in the virgin birth, the bodily resurrection of Christ, the blood atonement, and yet they call themselves Christians. So within Christendom, that is a term that covers many Christ-denying Christian cults like Unitarianism, Christian Science, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, and the Unification Church, which are the Moonies, of course, but it doesn't just include the cults, right? We can also include in this group that has come into the church, groups like the World Council of Churches. Uh, the World Council of Churches has 349 member churches, some of them conservative but clueless, most of them very liberal, 349 member churches. And together these churches represent, listen, 560 million professing Christians. This group has embraced many false doctrines and many social evils like abortion, gay marriage, gay rights. It has even funded terrorist groups because a lot of these churches uh, are rooted in uh, Christian liberation theology, which is just Christianized Marxism. So they support groups that will bring communism to various areas of the world. 
So we can see how Satan, pictured as the birds in this parable, has lodged in the branches of the church, infiltrated it, uh, has expanded it. The Roman Catholic Church itself is a very, very wealthy church. In fact, Revelation chapter 17, as I believe John sees this woman riding this beast, and she's decked out in jewels and has a golden chalice in her hand and, uh, and all. He's describing primarily now the final world church, which I believe is a Roman Catholic. I was a Roman Catholic at one time. I believe the Roman Catholic Church is going to spearhead. And John looks at this woman who represents the final church. And he is amazed. The Greek word is he's, it's a mixture of shock and horror. Why? Because John is a first century Christian guy. In John's day, the church was poor. It was scattered. It was being persecuted. It was underground many times. It didn't have any wealth. It was being persecuted. Now he sees this monstrosity, this, this something abnormal, this last day's church, and she's powerful, she's wealthy, and John says she's drunk with the blood of the saints. She's the one killing God's true people. He was horrified. And this is exactly what is going to eventually happen. The Satan has infiltrated the church. In the visible church, you still have, of course, the true church, the true body of Christ, the faithful remnant. But guys, we're a remnant compared to this monstrosity that calls itself the Christian church spread around the world, made up of Catholics and Protestants, and of course cults. And Satan couldn't beat him, so he joined the church and tries to corrupt it from the inside out. The Word of God is what set me free from spiritual deception. And that brings us then to the second parable this morning, the parable of the leaven, because it dovetails with this. He said in verse 33, another parable he spoke to them. He said, The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it all was leavened. And once again, a very common interpretation held by a lot of wonderful Christians, pastors, and teachers is that the meal is the world. The meal in this parable represents the world, and the leaven is the gospel, which once hidden in the world will permeate through the entire world where eventually everyone is going to be saved. Now that's a very common interpretation. Jesus here is talking about kingdom of heaven is like leaven, the gospel, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal, the world, until what? All was leavened. So in other words, the gospel is going to go out, do its work, permeate through the world until finally everyone gets saved. Really? Well, folks, that interpretation is not only unscriptural, it's laughable. When you look at the condition of the world today, look, the world isn't getting better and better, brighter and brighter as the word of God, the light of God has gone out into all the world. The world is getting darker and darker, more and more deceptive, more and more evil. And further, if the leaven does represent the gospel, why is she hiding it? We're not called to hide our light. We're called to let it shine, right? Look, guys, I believe that this parable is also emphasizing the same idea as the last parable. Leaven is always a type of evil in the Bible. Leaven is always a th- The Jewish people understood this when God, back in Exodus 12, verse 15, told them to go through their houses and purge it of all leaven before he would lead them out of Egypt. 
They understood leaven meant evil. They had a whole feast that celebrated the removal of all evil from their lives, the feast of unleavened bread, right? Where God says any Jew that eats any leavened from the first to the seventh day of this feast would be cut off from their people. Leaven was a bad thing. God's people knew that. In the New Testament, Jesus warned us against the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, which he said in Matthew 16, verse 6 and 12, meant their false teaching, their false doctrine. In 1 Corinthians 5, verses 6 to 8, leaven is defined as malice and evil. And once again in Galatians 5, 9, there the context is once again false teaching. Look, guys, in general, leaven means either false doctrine or evil behavior, which when introduced into a church will permeate through the whole church and corrupt it from within, which is exactly the process of fermentation caused by yeast in regular dough, right? Remember what Paul said to the church of Corinth, who was allowing a guy to live with his own stepmother in broad daylight? And Paul says, what is this evil you're allowing? Don't you know this is leaven? Don't you realize a little leaven will leaven the whole lump? In other words, a little evil allowed to remain in the church will permeate. And everyone starts thinking, well, if they can do it, I can do it. No big deal. Then pastors and not say anything. I guess it's okay. So we'll live together and this and that. A little level leaven pauses, leavens the entire church. Therefore, purge it out is the idea. So in this parable, I believe the Lord warns us against the permeating power of corrupt practices. Whether you talk about moral issues, I think supporting terrorism would fall under that category, right? But also, as we said, the church in many areas of the world, many organizations that call themselves Christians are very big in supporting gay rights, abortion, liberation theology, Christianized Marxism, and so on. Also, he's warning us that leaven represents false doctrine, which you have to be careful that your church remains pure doctrinally. Now, that's just not my responsibility or Pastor Mike or Pastor Bob. It's your responsibility as well, because here's what I'm going to tell you, what I think the Lord is saying kind of uh, as a side issue, maybe. All right? You might think, well, you're reading a lot into that. And maybe I am. But why three measures of meal? Now, I remember I said to you guys, you can't take a parable and push it to the nth degree. It begins to break down. And that's true. But Jesus himself said, it's like a woman who took three measures of meal and hid leaven in them. So to me, that is not insignificant. That means something. He could have said, it's like a woman who takes a lump of dough, sticks some leaven in there. He said three measures of meal. Meal, of course, is what bread is made out of. If you go back to the Old Testament, in Genesis 18, you remember how that the Lord Jesus Christ, in a pre-incarnate appearance, which he did in different places in the Old Testament. They were cameo appearances uh, before his incarnation called Christophanies. The Lord Jesus Christ and two angels comes to visit Abraham. Remember that in Genesis 18? Now Abraham doesn't know who they are. He runs into Sarah and says, look, take three measures of meal and make some bread for our guests. And many see in that uh, the three measures of meal symbolizing fellowship. But fellowship around bread, which symbolically speaks of the word of God, right? I mean, the bread of life, bread from heaven, manna, that represented the word of God. We feed on God's word every day to remain strong and healthy. So spiritually speaking, the meal, I believe, could represent the word of God. And here's the thing, guys. There are those that will come into the church. Now, he said, a woman who takes three measures of meal and hides leaven in there. You should hear what some of the commentators do to you girls. Okay. Oh, see, this women should never teach Bible studies. 
No, you know, no. That's reading too much into it. The idea is that it was women back then who kneaded the dough and made the bread. She represents any false teacher. And, you know, there are people that come into our church and have over the years. When they come in and they are the sweetest folks, they are so outgoing. And they come, and, of course, you guys are so loving. You just want to embrace everybody, and, and you want to get to know people and make them feel uh, welcome. And so you either invite them over to your house or they invite you over to their house. And what do you do? What do we Christians do when we get together? We do what? We eat together, don't we? And over a meal, and then, of course, the word comes out, and a little Bible study takes place. They begin to interject into the teaching of God's word, the leaven, their weird doctrine that they've hooked on to. You're not going to know it unless you know the truth really well, unless you're feeding on the pure word of God, unleavened meal unleavened bread the word of God which is pure unadulterated, unpolluted and that's important that we always make sure whether you're going to this church or if you're visiting and you have another church that you attend regularly, look you better make sure in these last days that your leaders first of all are not mixing into God's word leaven and I interpret that to mean anything that is contrary to what God has said or tries to compete for a place alongside God's word as being necessary to you, you know, growing and being all that God wants you to be. Today, there are those people who will try to pervert the word totally, the cults. Tell you, Jesus isn't God. He didn't rise from the dead bodily. That's big leaven, right? That's obvious leaven. More subtle forms are the word of God is God's word, but it's not sufficient. You need psychology. You need this. You need that to supplement it. We've got to mix them together. Be very careful. We are in the last days. And this doesn't just apply to us as the church watching out in general. It means, guys, you individually need to watch out too for the wolves that will come in. And again, you know, they're very nice people oftentimes. And a lot of them are genuinely deceived themselves. They're on a crusade now because this is something only a few people have seen in the Bible. You know, if you're embracing a teaching that very few people in the church see in the Word, but you see it, uh, you better be very careful because you're probably seeing something that's not there. You're probably reading into the Word something the devil wants you to mix into the Word. Be careful. And again, the idea that she took three measures of meal, fellowship, around the Word of God, a Bible study, and she hid leaven in there. Be careful. Be very careful. There's a lot of false teachers in these last days that are everywhere. It just boggles my mind to hear some of the things people have embraced in the name of biblical Christianity. It's absolutely mind-blowing to see the level of deception that some Christians have embraced when they ought to know better. Well, why don't they know better? Because they're not really studying the Word. I mean, you better get your roots going. You better feed on the pure Word of God, the pure milk of the Word and the pure bread of the Word unleavened, and so on. Let's finish with verses 34 and 5. All these things Jesus spoke to the multitudes in parables, and without a parable he did not speak to them, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. That comes out of one of Asaph's Psalms, Psalm 78, verse 2. It gets back into something we said when we first started this section. 
And that is that at this point, we see a dramatic departure in the, te- in the teaching of Jesus from the plain, simple teaching he gave, we'll say, when he gave the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7. Now, he has kind of become cryptic in a sense. He is, uh, he's revealing truth, but only to those with the right heart. Matthew, uh, Mark tells us that after he would teach the multitudes in parables, he would take his disciples on the side to explain everything to them. So they understood. But for those who did not love the truth, God says, you don't deserve the truth. If you don't want it, what am I casting my pearls before the swine then? And so God removes the ability to understand the truth because their hearts became so hard. Now, that was part of what parables were all about, to reveal truth to the open-hearted, to hide truth from the hard-hearted. But we go on in verse 35, that he spoke parables that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. That comes out of Psalm 78, verse 2, a psalm written by Asaph. And it's true. Through these parables, Jesus is teaching us of the kingdom of God on the earth, the church. Guys, the church was not known in the Old Testament. It was a mystery. It was hidden from them. God revealed the church, this brand new creation, as Paul went on to call it, which would consist of Jewish believers and Gentile believers who would come together as one new man in one body, the body of Christ. And of course, parables were designed then to reveal these kingdom truths to, again, the open-hearted. But to the hard-hearted, this prophecy also meant, you know, I'm going to speak in parables. I'm going to utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world, well, things that will still be kept secret from the hard-hearted. In essence, he was saying, too, that my ministry is, again, fulfilling the prophecies about the coming of Messiah. Because in the Old Testament, it was prophesied Messiah, when he came, at one time would begin to speak in parables, which Jesus Christ has now begun to do. And I guess it just teaches us that God only gives a person so long to receive the truth before they've hardened their hearts so much that God says, fine, you want to harden your heart to the truth? I'll make it even harder. Like Pharaoh. In the Old Testament, Moses went to Pharaoh. We read, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Then we read, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. That's what we're talking about. It's very important that when a person hears the gospel, that they don't keep rejecting it. We, we all did that for a while, right? But there comes a point when God says, fine, I've given you ample opportunity to see the truth, to embrace the truth. If you don't want the truth, I'm going to remove the ability to understand it. And now it becomes utter foolishness. And you become a source of mocking. And now God will say to a person like that, in a sense, if I can use the, the imagery, now God takes... See, God's going to get glory from our lives one way or another. The best thing to do is let him get glory from your life by you willingly submitting your life to him, right? Then God will lift you up and say, look, this is a person who is wise. They have bowed the knee to me. They have made me their king. They have patterned their lives after my word. This is a wise person. Let me show you what this person has done. And he raises up a hard-hearted unbeliever with a big circle around them and a line through it. See, this is the guy you don't want to be like. This is the guy that hardened his heart towards my word. This is the guy whose life is bearing the consequences of his rebellion. You don't want to, you know, I'm going to get glory one way or another. I love to get glory from you because you're following after me and I can lift you up and bless you. But if you're going to harden your heart, I'll lift you up and say, look, don't be like this person. The truth of God is a precious thing. As we're going to see next week, it is so precious. We can't even begin to understand. I mean, next week, 
the parables that Jesus... He's, he's warning us this week and warning us about false teaching and so on and the way the devil works. That's important. But it doesn't really edify us, right? Some things are designed to inform, inform us or educate us. Other things in, the, in God's Word are designed to bless us and encourage us and edify us. Next week, those parables do that. The fifth and sixth parables. So we need to be on guard. These are the last days. Satan has infiltrated many churches with false doctrine. And it's my prayer that we remain pure, that we can someday stand before the Lord Jesus Christ as the church of Philadelphia did, where he will say to them and to us someday, he said, well done. You have kept my word and have not denied my name. Well done. I want to hear the Lord say to us, well done. You guys were a little church. That's what the church of Philadelphia was. You have a little strength, he said. You're a small church, but you're big in my eyes because you have kept my word and have not denied my name. May God give us grace to wind up being that kind of a church and someday hear him say, well done. Father, we thank you for your word, which is light, it's truth, it's our daily bread. It gives us strength. It helps us to grow. And Lord, the devil wants to pollute it and pervert it and mix into it the leaven of false doctrine to make us sick, to poison us from the inside. And Lord, we pray that you would give us grace as we read your word with an open and pure heart that your spirit would give us guidance, give us the interpretation, that we stay on the narrow path, that we walk in the light of your truth, and that, Lord, we can be a source of light to others in darkness. So, Lord, thank you for your word. And now give us the grace to have a passion to study it, that we might hear you say someday, well done, good, and faithful servants. We thank you, Lord. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.